people ask me a lot with, with the nook or with photography, you know, tips for, for how to do what I did. And I can tell right away what the, what the person's motivation is. And if they're, they're motivated by just a true heartfelt desire to do the thing. then I, I think there's a lot of potential there and they'll probably do well at it. If it's more of a specifically career or money-making endeavor, then I kind of say like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's not why I did it. It was never why I did it. And um, I don't know how to give you advice to run a business because I don't know anything about running a business. Like I never tried to run a business with anything I've ever done. I'm a horrible business person. I just loved what I was doing and put all of myself into it. And the reward was that people saw that. And um, I didn't have to like market myself as a photographer. I didn't have to market the nook. I didn't do any, I didn't do any pushing it or trying to put it out there. I just put myself fully into it. And then people noticed and it turned into successful things. Welcome to Behind the Stays, a podcast that shares the stories behind your favorite Airbnbs and the hosts who've made them memorable. Behind the Stays is brought to you by Sponstaneous, a free weekly newsletter that brings you a carefully curated list of last-minute deals and upcoming steals on Airbnb. Sign up at Sponstaneous.com. I'm your host, Zach Buzicruz. Enjoy the show. It's 11.32 p.m. on a Thursday night and you wake up in a panic. You forgot to send your guests the custom lockbox combination for your Airbnb and you missed the 17 messages they sent saying that they couldn't get in because you enabled sleep mode on your iPhone. You know, to try and cut down on screen time before bed and all. After apologizing profusely and sending them a bottle of bubbly in hopes that they won't leave you a one-star review, you think to yourself, how do other hosts stay on top of guest communications? The answer? They use Guesty for Hosts, an easy-to-use rental management platform. With features like automated messages that send important communications to guests at the exact right times, you'll never have to jeopardize your beauty sleep again. Guesty for Hosts allows a short-term rental host to manage listings from Airbnb, VRBO, and Booking.com in one calendar and send a series of automated messages before, during, and after the guests stay. The platform also has features that help you manage cleanings, build a custom booking website, and so much more. You can start your 14-day free trial today, no credit card or setup fee or commitment required, and you can cancel anytime if you don't love it. And it gets even better. While getting started for the first time, use the discount code SPONSTANIUS for 20% off your first year. Again, that's SPONSTANIUS. Use that discount code at checkout for 20% off your first year. In just a moment, you'll meet Mike Bellamy, the creator of The Nook, an obsessively handcrafted Airbnb just outside of Asheville in North Carolina. Growing up, Mike loved to skateboard. At one point, he thought he might even go pro. But as he grew older, another craft that he had dabbled in began to pique his interest even more. And that craft was photography. Mike's incredible focus and unrelenting pursuit of perfection has landed him gigs with media companies like National Geographic, Time Magazine, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times. And while his passion has been and continues to be storytelling through the medium of still images, Mike recognizes that photography has its limits when it comes to evoking emotion and the ability to change perspectives. 
And it was this recognition, at least in part, that inspired him to build a story in the form of a house, a house that became the Nook. Tune in to hear the story of how Mike and his wife Kristen created a tiny home where Japanese aesthetic intersects with anthropology-esque accents and where everything from your coffee mug to the tile in the bathroom is made by a local artist. All right, without further ado, get ready to meet Mike. So, Mike, if I were to go to a happy hour with some of your closest friends, and if I were to ask these friends to tell me a story that would give me greater insight into who Mike is, what is the story that you that you think that they might tell? Well, honestly, I have no idea what kind of stories you'd hear, and some of them might be somewhat incriminating depending on how far back we're going. But um, <laughs> since you're asking me, I'll just tell you uh, the story that I want to tell, which um, serves a dual purpose of also kind of being about the nook and it'll introduce the space a little bit and some of the conceptual background. Um, so there's two stories actually that that are about kind of the the building of the nook that ended up becoming part of the nook itself hmm. through this diorama that um, my friend Haley Nochik made. So I told her these two stories, gave her some material, and she made this beautiful art piece out of it. So the stories are, one of them was uh, fairly early on in the process, my friend Jesse and I were carrying some wood from my house, which is on the same property, down to our build site. And as we're walking, we hear this high-pitched squealing noise like kind of a squeaking sound. And um, and we put down the wood and we're looking around trying to figure out where it was. And then we see a, a bunny rabbit kind of hopping away and then a baby bunny following the the mama bunny. And and then I'm, I'm he- I keep hearing the squealing sound and I'm kind of looking in this little thicket. And I, I put, pull back some weeds and um, what I see is a, a baby bunny rabbit halfway inside the mouth of a black snake. And it's still alive and it's squealing. Um, And it was kind of a ethical dilemma for me because I'm actually more of a snake lover than any, I I, I love all animals, but I'm particularly love snakes. Um, But it was also kind of like horrifying to watch this baby bunny like squealing (laughs) for its life and its family running away and stuff. So I ended up picking up the snake and, and pulling the bunny out of its mouth and it was still alive. It hopped away and then I took the snake down the street and really released it somewhere else. Um, so you just, and, you just grabbed the snake like by yeah. like its tail, by its head, by, by, yeah. Like the back of its head. I grew up catching snakes. My dad did it his whole life as a kid. He would <sighs> catch poisonous snakes, all kinds of snakes. I never caught poisonous snakes, but something like a black snake. I've, I've caught hundreds of in my life. Um, in fact, my family used to do this thing called in the town we grew up in called Saluda, a tiny town. We had a thing called the Saluda Snake Catchers. And we had little signs posted up around town for people to call us if they had a snake in their house instead of killing it or on their property. And we'd go catch it and re-release it somewhere in the wild. No way. Um, yeah. So, the, uh, the, so I went back to this little bunny burrow several days later. The bunnies had evacuated, but um, I gathered the little 
the mama bunny puts its, uh, it collects some of like the down fur from its belly and it makes a little nest out of it. So I collected that and we'll come back to this story. But the next part of the story is um, when we were building the nook and, and we were adding insulation into the walls, I found a bird's nest inside one of the walls. Huh. And uh, I took it out of the wall because, you know, we had to put, unfortunately we had to evict the the bird because we were <laughs> building a house and I had to put insulation in there. But I, I kept the bird's nest and I looked at it closely and realized that the material that the bird was using to make its nest was our building materials, was wood shavings and things from, from the construction that we were doing. Huh. So I thought there was this really beautiful kind of meta uh, story within a story where the, the, bird was building its home within our home using the materials that we were building to use our home. And, um, so I kept the nest and, uh, I gave both the, the fur, the bunny fur and the nest to my friend Haley Nochik. And she's an incredible artist who does, um, felted wool sculpture. Huh. And so I built a little box that could set into the wall by the bed, right at the spot where that bird's nest was, where I found it originally. And, she constructed this woodland scene um, with a little bird, a tufted titmouse is the type of bird that we chose. I don't know if that's what the original bird nest was, but, uh, and she used the pieces from the nest um, and, and put them kind of along the forest floor in the diorama and the birds picking up the wood chips and stuff like that. And then there's a little bird nest in the corner. And then underneath uh, you're kind of seeing a cross section of the ground and the birds on top and underneath the ground, you see a little burrow with a, mama bunny and a couple of babies and they're in this den that's actually made up of the fur from the, the original real den. Um, so, and there's actually, um, a little bit of snake skin in that came from the bird's nest that's in, in the, uh, the diorama too. So it's, it all these stories kind of tie together wow. into this one art piece. That's one of my favorites in the nook. So what, what I gather from those, those two stories about you is a couple things. You can correct me if I'm wrong here, but one, you have a deep appreciation and love of, of animals and nature, but then two, you have an incredible attention to, to detail, right? Like meaning like when I think of, if I was to be building something and I were to see a bird's nest, I honestly don't think I would look twice at the material of that nest, but the mm -hmm. fact that like you realized, oh, interesting. This is this nest is made out of materials that we are using to build the nook. And there's some snakeskin in here as well. And then you put two and two together is, you know, what I imagine is just, you know, uh, a testament to your attention to detail. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, I, I think so. And the other big piece is that as a storyteller, you know, I'm a documentary photographer, which we'll get into more later, I'm sure. But um I'm always framing things in the context of story. Yeah, yeah. So from the beginning, a lot of pieces of story um, with the Nook were intentional, but just as many were discovered in the process, kind of just being aware of what was naturally happening and then turning it into a piece of conceptual storytelling. Yeah, very, very well said. So on that note, you know, you're an award-winning photographer. You've worked for brands, including, but not limited to, National Geographic, Time Magazine, Rolling Stone, and the New York Times. And on your website, you describe yourself as somebody who enjoys, quote-unquote, the challenge of creating thought-provoking and visually and emotionally impactful images, which I thought was super well said. 
have you always had this deep affinity for for visual storytelling like what what was your dream career when you were growing up as a kid well i've always been someone who's focused really intensely on one thing actually somewhat until i would say in recent years i've started to kind of diversify my life a little bit and and spread myself a little bit thinner but um as a kid there was always something that i was just intensely focusing on um and around the age of 11 so when i got into skateboarding and that became the thing from then until about 25 um age 25 that's kind of, that's just like all i did all huh. day every day it was just this is intense and, and i had this dream of being a professional skateboarder and i really pushed myself at it super hard and that's also where the, the visual storytelling kind of came in because as a skateboarder one of the main things you do is make skate videos so you know, most skateboarders also have a camera. They also know how to film. And so we take turns filming each other and uh, started learning how to edit. And um, so, and also still photography to less a degree, but certainly, you know, there's, there's, we take skate photos for try to try to be in magazines and stuff like that. So that was really some of my first introduction into photography was huh. through skateboarding and um, cameras always being around. And, uh, I think that was largely why I picked up photography. Um, and there was this really kind of somewhat seamless transition between as I got into photography and that started to be more my priority, but I was still really into skateboarding. And for a while it was a bit of a conflict because like I said, I'm used to focusing on one thing intensely at a time. And for a while I was focusing on both, but then it kind of just became this gradual, you know, skateboarding became less important to me. Photography became more important to me. And then, I've ended up focusing all of my attention on photography for the next uh, seven or eight years. I mean, really until now I'm 36 now, but like I said, now in the last few years, things like building the nook, you know, for that period of time, photography was completely background. It was yeah. just 100% focusing on the building. So now I'm kind of diversifying that a little bit. So you're, you're speaking in a way that's like, you know, somewhat nonchalant. You just sort of fell into this kind of one thing led to another, but like, so I, I work in marketing and, you know, there's a lot of people that in marketing today or people that work outside of marketing that will say something like, oh, I, I can do social media. Like, like, I know how to I know how to do social media well. And it's like, oh, you know, you've posted on Instagram a couple of times, you, you know, tweet occasionally, but every everyone thinks that they're good at social media. And I feel like mm -hmm. in, in, a, in a similar vein, there are a lot of people out there that like just think that they're good at photography. Right. Um, and obviously phones and and apps like Instagram have made this have made being a photographer, um, you know, lowercase p photographer a little bit more accessible, perhaps. But there's there's mm -hmm. a there's a dramatic difference between people that know how to take good pictures on their iPhone and use cool filters on Instagram and, and post content. And you know, the work that you do. So like, at what point along the way, do you realize, wow, like, I'm, I'm actually good at this. And like, I, I could make a career out of this. I mean, you've worked from, you know, for, for some of the most interesting uh, brands in, in media and journalism today. So like there had to have been a point where you realize, Oh, I I'm special here. What, what was that point? Do you, do you remember it? Well, um, I don't remember a decisive moment, but one facet of it is like I said before, whenever I get interested in something, I kind of put all of myself into it. 
and push myself really hard at it. Um, but I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what, what, if there was a particular moment, but I, I think, um, the, the most important part for me, and this is with anything that I do is that I'm not, it's about where the motivation is coming from. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you, to me, that's how you kind of get, it's, it's people ask me a lot with, with the nook or with photography, you know, tips for, for how to do what I did. And I can tell right away what the, what the person's motivation is. And if they're, they're motivated by just a true heartfelt desire to do the thing. And I, I think there's a lot of potential there and they'll probably do well at it. If it's more of a specifically career or money-making endeavor, yeah. then I kind of say like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that's not why I did it. It was never why I did it. And um, I don't know how to give you advice to run a business because I don't know anything about running a business. Like I never tried to run a business with anything I've ever done. I'm a horrible business person. I just <laughs> loved what I was doing and put all of myself into it. And yeah. the reward was that people saw that. And um, I didn't have to like market myself as a photographer. I didn't have to market the nook. I didn't do any, I didn't do any pushing it or trying to put it out there. I just put myself fully into it. And then people noticed and it turned into successful things. Do you, Last question on this, and then we can transition to talking more about uh, about the Nook. But as a as a photographer, like, do you enjoy the shoot or like the editing more? Like, is it is it more? Do you get you know? I know a few creatives. Um, mostly, most of the people in my immediate circles are are videographers, but I do have a couple uh, friends who are who are amateur uh, photographers and they always sort of fall into like one camp is like, Oh, I, I love the shoot, but, and I like the editing, but it's, it's more of a pain or like, Hey, for me, where I really get like my kick is, is in the editing. Where, where do you sort of like fall on that spectrum? Um, I would say pretty far on the side of shooting being what I enjoy more. Um, and the word editing has different meanings for different people. Um, within my industry, editing means sequencing images, not manipulate, like not ah. Photoshopping or, or we call that toning. Toning. Okay. So, but, Thank you. but the editing for me, the sequencing of the images, that part I really, really do enjoy. I don't enjoy the toning particularly. It's, it is fun to kind of see your, your, your vision that you had in the beginning kind of come to fruition in the exact, you know, hopefully the way you envisioned it. But, um, Sequencing, I really, really enjoy because, you know, especially with long-term projects, I've shot some of the projects that my personal projects span uh, over 10 years. And so it's a collection of ideas and moments from a lot of time (laughs) and an evolution of ideas. And so sitting and looking at at 10 years worth of ideas and then trying to find connection between them and, and how one leads to the other is really gratifying. Although it's also just exhausting. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've been working on one edit for years now and Jeez. I've redone it probably a hundred times and, uh, I'm still not there. I'm still redoing it. So it's, it's just, it's intense, but it's, it's something that when you do finally see all the pieces come together in a way that builds a narrative, it's really powerful, but really shooting is the most important part for me. Cause it's, to me, it's about, um, connection and, and building relationships. And I've had 
my whole life has changed dramatically based on stories that I've uh, photographed and the relationships I've built. Hmm. And the Nook is an example of that. The Nook would not exist if it wasn't for some of the photo projects that I did before that. Well, speaking of the Nook, a few weeks ago, my wife Gabby and I had the opportunity to stay there. And, you know, this is just an incredible space. And it's it's hard to put it into words uh, because it is so special. And as I've mentioned to you before, and as our as our listeners know, we like to consider ourselves professional Airbnb guests, um, having stayed in well over 55 places over the last year. And there's there's definitely just something that immediately hits you when you walk into the Nook that is that is different. It's obviously a beautiful space, but um, it the, the the way that we sort of like distilled our feelings in sort of that initial impression of the Nook was that it evoked this tranquility and creativity, like this simultaneous peace, but I want to go create something too. Like it, it was this very, very interesting, uh, interesting feeling. And as my wife, Gabby noted, she, she, you know, the Nook is really this collection of, of smaller nooks you guys have this breakfast alcove you've got a tea loft you've got an entertainment loft a you know cozy sleeping area and you even have this super cool indoor swing which i really want to get the story behind because it's kind of a a, something that immediately catches your eyes as you stumble into the space and you know each space does seem to have some story that it wants to tell so i you know of course we noticed the the diorama too um that is in, in the in the bedroom nook and I figured that there was a story behind that, but I'd love to just go back to the very beginning. Where where did this idea for the Nook originally come from? Well, it it's really a, the origin story, I would say, goes back to a photo project that I worked on for about seven years, um, which was a, a primitivist kind of uh, very off-the-grid very simple, uh, simple living kind of community in Western North Carolina, living in the woods, no electricity, you know, cooking over fire, um, starting from friction, uh, things like that. Um, and that project really changed my life. I mean, it, it spurred my interest and that was really started at, at a younger age, but during the skateboarding years had kind of dissolved away my interest in plants and wild foods and trees and wood. Um, and so I started going and spending a lot of time at this community and just learning so much every time I went and building connection to fire, to wood, to these resources that, that we rely on, but we so often don't have a deep understanding of where they come from or, or, um, what they even are in their nature. Uh, so that time, spent there kind of led to three and a half years of Kristen and I living in a tree house in the woods, also in Western North Carolina. Wow. And that was where we started to kind of apply some of these lifestyles and, and some of the, these pieces of uh, knowledge and skills that I was learning at Wild Roots. We started to apply those in our everyday life. And so I would say the nook, once we moved away from the tree house, we were living in a more modern um, house, but we wanted to continue that evolution and really give a nod to that uh, that chapter of our lives. So the Nook was very largely inspired by the treehouse. 
and also inspired by Wild Roots. Um, and sorry, of course, just, to, we just to clarify, Wild Roots was the was the community that you were photographing. Yes, got it. Yeah, okay. sorry. Um, so yeah, there's certain facets of the nook that are specific nods to Wild Roots, like the the steps coming down the trail were made in the technique that I I learned at Wild Roots. Um, but for the most part, you know the 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 style of building. Um, you know, we weren't going to do waddle and dab huts, which is what uh, has made it wild roots. But there's there's nods certainly to to wild roots, and even more so to our time at the treehouse. So, and I would say that's, that's sorry the, uh, the the treehouse. So that that was not a part of wild roots, but was did you guys have electricity and running water there? We did. Okay, it was primitive in a lot of ways, but those two things in particular, we did have. Um, it was pretty far back in the woods, so you kind of had to hike to get to it. And that was one of the, the parts that was most profound and life-changing. Is um, And that's a part that kind of, to a lesser degree, um, informed the, the nook with the little trail coming in. Um, but the, the other piece of the origin story, I would say, for the nook is that as a photographer, you know, I'm a storyteller, and like I said, earlier about shooting being, you know, these important moments of connection and life-changing experiences for me. But I started to feel this really big gap between the experience I was having and the experience the viewer is having. And I really, you know, I love doing photography, but I feel like photography as a medium medium is um, in some ways less powerful than uh, audio. Like I love podcasts as a storytelling medium. I love films. I love, uh, video, all of those things in some ways I think are more powerful to transport the viewer and make the viewer feel the emotions um, more so than photography. But I just love the, the art of photography. So yeah. that's the, the, the way that I decided to go. But because there's this big gap in what I'm experiencing and what the viewer is experiencing, I decided to, to start to think about these concepts that I was trying to communicate through photography and how they could be communicated in other ways. And so really the nook became this vessel for storytelling huh. and the same stories that I tell through photography are all, they're all specifically present in the nook. And now it's a space that people can actually come into and have their own experience and their own interpretation. And, and they get to live the story and, and be in it. Like I'm like, I am in it. Um, and I, I hope that, through the the lived experience of a story, they're they're able to feel it a little bit more than I still love photography. I'm going to continue to do photography, but I that was my way of trying to bridge that gap. That's incredibly fascinating. So, in an effort to help people better understand you, the work that you do, and and really sort of the story beyond all of that, you thought what better way to help than create an immersive experience where you're looking, feeling, touching, smelling aspects of the story. Right. Very, very cool. Um, well, I think for what it's worth, you you all nailed that. Um, so mm -hmm. you, it's my understanding that you all worked with something like 20 local artists to hand make just about, if not, you know, everything that is made uh, and, and present in the nook and you i think you teamed up with rob and carrie of shelter collective who helps design the space 
But I have a, mm-hmm. a couple just like overarching questions around the design and the and the crafting of the space, and then we'll dive into um, some more specific questions. But first and foremost, you know why the why the Japanese aesthetic influence, and then why was the hyper local nature of of this project so important to to both you and Kristen? Um, so the reason we were I, that I grew up in West North Carolina is because before that my parents had uh, lived in Japan for about a year, and they were there specifically um, to learn how to make miso. Uh, they were part of this food movement called macrobiotics that had a kind of Japanese focus to it. So um, their time in Japan was just incredibly formative to their lives. They they ended up writing three books about um, the health benefits of Japanese food and uh, kind of diving into the culture of Japan and how it relates to the food. And so I grew up eating almost exclusively Japanese food. All of the art in our house was Japanese that we ate. I grew up eating at a kotatsu, which is the traditional Japanese uh, table that you sit around and it's heated in the middle of the quilt over your lap. Um, so really that was you know, from, from the beginning of me making memories, uh, I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't hugely influenced by Japanese culture and aesthetic. So, um, that when it came to designing the nook, it was just a really natural kind of, uh, that's that informed the aesthetic. And there's a few things in particular. In fact, the, the tea tray, which is used to lift tea from the, the kitchen up to the tea loft, um, there's kind of like three little mini stories within that tea tray that all relate Japan and Appalachia. Um, because a lot of people have kind of noted this relationship between certain regions of Japan, the mountains of Japan and the Mount, the Appalachian mountains. And there's a lot of kind of aesthetic crossover there. And the entire nook is really kind of referencing that aesthetic crossover, but, um, that uh, I've heard several people refer to it as Japalachian uh, aesthetic. Huh. And, and so one such person that I've heard say that is Akira Satake. He actually lives in Swananoa where the nook is, and he's an incredible ceramicist. He's one of the most celebrated artists in all of Western North Carolina. And he's a Japanese man um, living in, you know, Appalachia, of course. And uh, his, his aesthetic is really tuned in, I think to both the, the Japanese and, and Appalachian experience. And then um, the the box itself that I, I, I put a couple of Akira Satake's cups, those are the teacups. Oh, and wow. I, put those, I put those in a box that was made from these cedar trays that were the original trays that I was able to get my hands on from when my parents started making miso. Um, so they were kind of different shape, but I cut them up. I, I, I got my hands on them, I cut them up, and I made them into this tray. And so uh, this, this is, you know, one of the, the most significant relationships between uh, Japan and Appalachia is my parents introducing miso to the United States. And, um, and so, yeah, the, 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 uh, the what's called koji trays that they use to make miso, I utilized for the tea tray. And then uh, the handle is attached to the tray, um, using kudzu fiber, a friend, my friend, Lauren at kudzu culture, um, has a a business where they use kudzu fiber and kudzu of course is a Japanese plant that was introduced 
to the southern United States to control erosion, but it kind of took over huh. and, and is now considered an invasive plant. But it has a lot of traditional uses in Japan. It was used as medicine. It was used as um, fiber for making clothes and art. Uh, so that's kind of another Japan Appalachia crossover that we, we use that material in the tea tray. What is really cool about the space is, and I, and I want to get on to, to, you know, these other threads. Um, but what's really, what you've done so well is it doesn't seem like any one thread is like more powerful or more dominating than the other. Like it really does feel like they work very much in, in harmony. Like if you were to say, if you were to walk in and, uh, you know, you don't notice, well, at least I did not notice the tea loft immediately. Right. And so mm -hmm. you, uh, you, you get a sense for, oh, wow, this is like, like the first thing I noticed was actually the breakfast, like alcove area, the dining alcove. Um, and it's very, you know, it's, it's beautiful. It, I, I, you know, I, I likened it to just this very cool, like chic, uh, almost like if, um, you know, and if anthropology were to have built like a little cabin, it, it like, I feel like it, they would, they would style, uh, their breakfast nook the way that you all did. I don't know if that's offensive to you or not, but, um, <laughs> and, uh, anyhow, that's the first thing that I noticed. And then, then you notice the tea loft and then I noticed the tray. And then of course I read your, your, uh, guest book and learned a little bit more about, uh, each aspect of the space. But for, I guess for what it's worth, I think that you guys have done a really good job at finding a way to bring these different narratives, as you've described, mm -hmm. together into a new narrative that that just works uh, and, and makes a lot of sense. So talk to us about these other these other threads of sort of like influence that make up yeah. the nook. Yeah, so the um, and I'm glad you pointed that out, that the, the each none of the particular threads kind of dominate because. The idea is that the, why, the reason I'm using the word thread is because threads are woven together. They make a tapestry. They um, they overlap. So, uh, for example, the tea tray is is sort of about these origins of um, Japanese and Appalachian culture and how that's influenced my life. But it's also a representation of the incredible creative community of Western North Carolina. Hmm. And that's the other one of the other main three threads is just telling telling the story of this incredible craft legacy um i mean it really just it, it starts of course with cherokee craft and um the amazing artwork that's made in cherokee and, and we have some cherokee uh woven tapestry work up at the tea loft uh and then you know throughout the history of this region you see um textile industry kind of becoming in a blue collar sense, kind of like the main industry of the area. And then North Carolina ceramics is kind of, is like a, a has a really rich history. And then you just have all these different people in West North Carolina who have made it a priority to preserve traditional craft ways and material usage. And, and so there's just an endless wealth of, um, knowledge and skill in this region and and i'm fortunate enough enough to know a lot of these people these are mostly friends of mine and they were before starting on the nook so i was able to basically just hire my friends and um highlight their work and and basically use something that was going to be generating tourism dollars 
and using that money to invest in the aspects of this community and in particular the creative community that I really value. So, you know, these are, that's why the hyper-local thing was so important um, because that's the story we want to tell about Western North Carolina. I want people to, to love the same things that I love about it. They're going to discover their own things when they come here, but I'm kind of giving people a, a, a starting point to, to, focus on some particular artists and aspects of the community that I personally uh, really value. And then the third thread, and we'll probably talk about this more later, is the ecology of the region. That's getting really deep into like the, the old history of, of this region. And that's mostly told through material use. Yeah. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit more. So, um, you know, you've, written and spoken before on you know other other podcasts and um our, you know blog articles that I found while preparing for for our chat today on how the nook has several design elements that are intended to subconsciously like guide the guest to a place of connection and I'm curious um how the materials that you have used to create this space might enable that to happen? Like what, what were some of these elements? What are some of these elements as you see it that help to accomplish this goal of bringing people into a space of community uh, or, or a space of just more general awareness of themselves and, and their surroundings? Well, the way that the materiality plays into that concept is First and foremost, this was something that was not intentional from the beginning, but partway through, I found, again, kind of like we were talking about with the diorama, I saw a pattern and then it became more intentional. And that was, I started to realize I'm a tree nerd. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely, you know, I'm just like obsessed with trees. And so I always know what trees are around me and, um, and I love woodworking. So as I'm starting to put these different pieces in the, the windowsill out of mulberry and the, the lofts out of white and red oak, I start to kind of have this awareness of, you know, I'm working on the windowsill and I look up and in front of me out of this big window is a mulberry tree. And then I start to be like, well, okay. I look down and there's the, there's the maple floor and there's a maple tree right there. And the lofts are made out of, like I said, red and white oak and we have red and white oaks immediately surrounding the nook. And I started to pick up on this pattern and then once I picked up on it, I made it very intentional that I would not use any wood on the interior of the house that was not visible from within the house, you know, mm-hmm. as a living tree outside of the house. Wow. So every tree that you're seeing um, or every wood that you're seeing as a material is also a living tree immediately surrounding you. And we kind of wanted to dive a little bit deeper into one wood in particular because we use walnut a lot in the house. It's the breakfast nook is all black walnut. And then the kitchen, uh, the cabinetry and stuff in the kitchen is all black walnut. And black walnut is it's easily the most celebrated and certainly the most valuable wood in, in Western North Carolina. And um, I wanted to get past, you know, everyone kind of knows it as that. Or if you do know about walnut, you know it as a valuable wood. But I wanted to get past that and to kind of tell the story of walnut as a wonderful tree that gives so many gifts aside from beautiful wood when it dies, you know? Huh. So, um, 
aside from utilizing the beautiful wood, which all of the wood that we used was from dead trees that I found, uh, or not all of the wood, but most of it. So this, this is, I didn't kill any trees to, to do the interior woodworking. I was all stuff that I, I was able to find and identify what it was and cut it down and take it to a sawmill. Um, so, and you were cutting these down yourself. Yeah. A lot of times would have help, but yeah, I would usually cut it up and cut it to size and then I would have to have help getting it somewhere because there's thousands of pounds. Yeah. Um, so yeah, with walnut, I I wanted to, to kind of go a little bit deeper than just, Oh my God, this is a beautiful wood and wow, this is an expensive wood or whatever. Uh, so with the way that we told the story of black walnut was, um, by showing some of the different uses of that tree. And, and one of those is uh, if you get the, the walnuts themselves before they ripen, they ripen in, in, in uh, the autumn, but they, um, in July or June, you can gather them when they're still soft and cut them into quarters. And you basically, um, you can make a liqueur. It's traditionally Italian, but it's, it's called nocino. It's huh. black walnut liqueur. And a good friend of mine, uh, who's one of the owners of Etta Rhine Distillery, they make a Nocino. I always help them every year gather their walnuts for, for the Nocino. So I always keep a bottle of their Nocino. I keep it on a walnut shelf in the kitchen. And that's a way of kind of telling another way that, that, that plant is used. And, and also it's the husk of the walnut is used as a dye. And I have two different pieces in the nook that were dyed by uh, walnut husk. One of them is a beautiful wool tapestry by uh, Jessica Sanchez of Rusted Earth. And the other one is a, a Cherokee river cane woven mat uh, in the tea loft. And that's made by Lauren C. Goings. Um, so this is a way of kind of talking about a particular material in a more holistic way. I'm, I'm curious, when you were designing this space, obviously... I mean, you paid all the attention to every detail, but Mm -hmm. like, did you have a particular like guest in mind? Like, were you, were you crafting a space specifically so that something would happen or something could happen to people when they showed up? Like, was it, were you thinking, how much were you thinking about the people that were going to be staying in the space versus like, I am just really thinking about creating a space that. I might want to stay in. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, it does. And I did think about that. I try not to think about it too much um, because I don't want to force a particular experience on a guest. Sure. And it does start with, you know, um, I I hope that people who are like-minded and appreciate the same things that I appreciate will come and they, and then they will make those connections and, and start to build a relationship with this place. Um, but it's basically designed to be appreciated kind of like an onion, you know, multiple Ah. layers. So there's the, there's the kind of surface layer that it's just a well-designed comfortable space. And if that's all that it is to you, then that's fine. It can, it can serve that function. But, um, I would say the ideal guest is someone who's open to something a little bit deeper than that. And, and especially, you know, you mentioned the intentionality thing. There's certain pieces of, of design that um, 
are made to kind of force a guest to slow down a little bit. The tea loft, you have to go through certain steps and procedures to, to make the tea, put it on the tea caddy, go up, lift it up into the, the tea caddy. And it basically becomes a ceremony because uh, there's not, there's not a, a simple way to go through that action. You kind of have to put in some intentionality, some effort. I think through that extra effort, then you're having an experience now. You didn't, you maybe didn't intend to, but I'm forcing you to. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I want people to be receptive to that and open to it. I, some people just may find it annoying that I build in these extra steps, but I'm, I'm, in a way, I'm kind of indoctrinating our guests into my <laughs> philosophy. And, um, yeah, you know what's funny about that too is uh, I was thinking about the the entertainment loft. Right. And how the TV is you got to you climb up to the loft to, to watch a, a movie. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And how I remember my wife and I sitting and it was like the sun was setting and we were like, oh, we could go walk up, you know, climb up to watch the show. But let's sit here instead. And like we like opened a book like for the first time in God knows how long. Right. And like just enjoyed the view and the sunset and like didn't watch a show um, because it was like that much, mm-hmm. you know. You had to be, you had, to your earlier point, you have to be intentional about going up and, and you know, deciding to put on Netflix, right? Um, yeah. And it was such a cool, such a small thing and, you know, relatively insignificant. But for us, it was like, a, again, that reminder of, do we want to do this? Like, it, oftentimes, it's just too easy mm-hmm. to turn on the remote because it's right there and the TV is right in front of you. Here, you have to think twice about, is this how I want to spend my evening? Or or could could I do something that might be a little bit more fulfilling to my soul elsewhere? Um, so anyways. Yeah. I, I think of that as default spaces. You know, normally there's a default space of the couch facing a TV and and your default thing to do is to sit on that couch and then there's the remote, you're going to turn on the TV. Yeah. So um, our closest thing we have to a default space is the couch, but it's instead of facing a TV, it's facing a giant window looking into the woods. Yeah, yeah. So your default action is actually kind of meditative and reflective. Um, and, and if you do choose to go up into the TV loft and watch TV, I think it's actually really kind of a sweet, um, cozy and more memorable way of doing that, you know? So I love watching TV down there and it, it, it is memorable, memorable to me more so than my usual, you know, sitting on a couch watching TV kind of a moment. So, yeah. And, and there's also, you know, things like the outdoor bath house yeah yeah um what was the inspiration behind that (laughs) well it was it was always supposed to be part of the plan that we're going to have an outdoor bath but toward the end we ran out of money and couldn't do it so we waited a year and then we had a year to really like build up a concept around it and uh my friend alex henderson who was the main builder for the nook he and his partner at the time coco i brought him back and he designed the bathhouse and we kind of engineered it together, mostly him, but I kind of like helped wrap my head around the, the engineering of it because it was a shape that neither of us had ever seen before. So there's no blueprint, you know, you had to figure out how to make it work. It was really challenging. It took months of just wrapping our head around it. And then we finally did build it. Um, and again, I, I started to kind of like build concept around it while we were building it as, as I was watching the shape take place and the, the, the slats of wood uh, and this kind of spiraling 
round formation and the um, metal straps to hold it together, I started to realize it looked like the miso vats that my parents ah. used to make miso. So, I mean, it really did. And that wasn't a part of the original concept. I just saw it in, as it was happening. And, um, and then I started to realize, well, I got this oak that I'm using from my parents' property. So it kind of ties in their story again. And the, the cedar that we used to set the tub into was, from an actual original miso vat. It, it had been sitting in my parents' basement for 30 years and I repurposed the wood. So it has all these aspects of uh, that, you know, family history in, in Japan. And that wasn't really on purpose. It just kind of happened that way. Um, but the thing about the, the, the bathhouse that ties into the intentionality piece is like, when you go out and take a bath, I'm, I'm sort of forcing you to be a captive audience to nature yeah. because there's nothing else. I mean, you could bring your phone. I hope people, you know, aren't just sitting on Facebook or something while they're in the bathtub, but <laughs> like the ideal experience is you're just sitting there quiet, looking up at the canopy. You can't help, but hear the birds. You can't help, but smell the smells. You can't help, but look at the trees. So you're kind of forced to really take it all in, in a way that you, you, a lot of times, or at least most people, I think, don't take that time to intentionally kind of look at their surroundings and listen to their surroundings. Yeah. So you have over 135 star reviews on Airbnb for the Nook. So I imagine you've gotten a lot of really great feedback from from guests. But has there been any feedback that's been particularly memorable and or surprising? Um. Well, there's a couple kinds of feedback that I get that is the most validating and gratifying. Um, and that's been through either, you know, meeting guests or, or them writing us and giving us feedback. Um, and the main thing is, you know, when, when someone has an experience that I really get a sense transformed them in some way, they, these, these pieces of, uh, story and intentionality that we've woven into it. Um, sometimes you get the sense that someone really got it. And when it's really gratifying is it's when it's not the guest that I, you know, kind of have in mind as someone who's already really tapped into all these things. It's someone who maybe is coming from a very different reality mm. and they're coming into this and they're, but they're really receptive to it. And they'll write me and tell me that, you know, this experience has made them, you know, kind of rethink some aspects of their life and, wanting to figure out how to incorporate some of these um, ways of slowing down and using intentionality into their own lives, which is really, you know, I had that experience at Wild Roots and through the treehouse, And so to have this building that I made facilitate that experience and transition for someone else uh, is really powerful. And then the other thing I think that I find even more gratifying is when I find out that one of our guests went to one of the artists that we feature and, and bought a piece from them or built a relationship with them. And that just happened recently with uh, Jessica Sanchez of Breasted Earth, the one that did the woven tapestry. She has this one, the biggest piece I think she's ever made. Um, and she's had it in her, in her online store for since before I knew her for years now. And it's, you know, it's her most expensive piece she's ever made. And, and then I just found out the other day that a guest of ours from Australia came and, and saw her piece in the nook and then bought that piece. Wow. So that wow. It made me feel really good. And that happens. I mean, it happens a whole lot with, you know, people will come and enjoy the, the ceramics and then go to East Fork and buy, you know, the, the 
um, pieces from there. And uh, I hope it happens a lot. I hear about it sometimes, but that's the honestly the, the main way that I feel that what we're doing is actually positively impacting our community because there's a lot of ways that, you know, Airbnbs and vacation rentals um, can be harmful to communities. Yeah. And so we always try to, to mitigate that by um, reinvesting in, in the community. Yeah. And I think that you guys have done it in just a, a beautifully artistic way, which I guess should not be a surprise given what we now know about you. But a lot of times, like you'll see, you'll see some, some attempts in Airbnbs of including sort of local coffee or from a, from a coffee roaster down the street or mugs that are available for purchase that weren't necessarily, you know, made by a local artist in the community, but like we're from a gift shop nearby and, and you know there are these you know valiant like efforts and, and attempts to i think bring the community into a home but you all went you know three steps uh further and decided wait, wait wait hold on how do we how do we not just bring like north carolina and you know western north carolina into the home with some you know, western north carolina stock photography and, and and pieces but like let's go to the artisans themselves of this area that are, you know, perhaps not as well known. And let's find a way to subtly like, you you know, you can't, I don't think a guest can buy anything directly from the nook, right? And some Airbnbs more and more of them mm -hmm. offer that now, right? But, you know, you have crafted such this compelling experience, so much so that people are willing to put in the work afterwards to go and figure out who these people are. And, and how they can buy something new of theirs. And that's just, I think, the most honest way. Um, it takes um, um, you know, an incredible amount of work and intentionality, but the most honest way to bring the community into a space. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's the way that, you know, we've, we've felt that we can... Um, yeah, introduce people to the, the the things that we love about this place, and we use our Instagram account to to start to like point people in those directions, um, so that they can know who the artists are and stuff. And I'm working right now on a book that will live in the nook that will, for one, help to build out some of these concepts, so people can sort of pick up on these uh, thematic conceptual threads but also the more important thing is just so they know who the artists are and yeah. can hopefully if they're you know impressed by the art or uh, it resonates with them they can go ideally go personally meet the artists visit them and that's what happened actually with uh the woman from australia she went out to jessica's farm and and visited the the sheep that the the wool comes from and wow. got to see some of the process and then walked home with a really incredible piece so that's the, that's the way that I interact with art in this community is I know the artists, I've watched their process. Um, and if that can happen for a guest of the Nook, then that's, I think that's the most amazing experience you could have in Western North Carolina is to like really get to know some of the artists and watch them make the work. For the Nook, I was there for every single piece that was made for the Nook. I was documenting the processes. I was watching them do it. Um, when we worked with Andy McFate on the woodworking, cause I'm also a woodworker, you know, I, I was helping, I was, I was very hands-on in the process. He's able to do some technical things that are way beyond my ability. So I couldn't have done it myself. Uh, but he was 
kind enough to let me at least be in on the process. And that's what connection is, you know, to actually, you have this object that is the result of an experience and a relationship. And uh, that's how I build my life. And I'm hoping that I can offer a glimpse into that to a guest at the Nook where they, they can realize, oh, I can, I can go meet this artist. I can watch them make this thing and now I can have it. And for the rest of my life, I'll understand what this thing is and what went into it. That's so well said. I have a, just a couple of final questions for you, Mike. One is just around what was most challenging throughout this entire process, right? So again, you guys have this incredible bathhouse. You've got these really cool lofts. Uh, the Nook in and of itself is, is a small, you know, space, but it feels so much larger because of the incredibly, you know, high ceilings and the big windows and, and the way that you guys have designed uh, the interior of the space. Again, these like series of nooks within a, a greater nook. But what was, what was, you know, you got the swing in there too. Like what, what, what was hardest about putting this space together? Overall, the hardest thing was the time, the sustained mental energy. Mm. Um, because, you know, the first couple months, we thought it was going to take three or four months to build. It ended up taking a year. And for that time, I didn't do anything else. You know, every single day I woke up, I went down to the nook, I worked on it all day till it got dark. And, and then when it was dark or, you know, when I wasn't working on it, I was thinking about it. I was trying to problem solve. I was trying to, you know, think a step ahead of where I was. So there was aspects that were physically exhausting, like digging, you know, 10 footers by hand and, and mixing the concrete and pouring, you know, all this stuff, putting in that window was a, you know, very physically exhausting, the giant window. Um, but it was less, less about that and more about the mental exhaustion because I was just so intensely focused on this one thing, this one facet of my life, everything else kind of fell behind. Um, even, you know, I wasn't able to be as present in my relationship as I normally would be. I wasn't able to be, you know, present as a photographer. I wasn't able to do any of these other things because I was just intensely focused all day, every day on this thing. And as that drug on and on farther, you know, into the year, much longer than I expected, but toward the end, I mean, I started to feel like I was like unraveling. I mean, mm. I, it was really, it was too much, you know, it was too long to be focused like that. But I have these two um, facets of my personality that kind of are both really stubborn. And one is I'm not willing to compromise the integrity of the vision or the, you know, material use or the way of doing it that I want to do it. So I kind of didn't have the option of taking shortcuts. Um, and I also get so intensely focused that I just can't make myself stop or slow down. So, you know, where other, other people may have taken a month off and done something else and come back to it. I just didn't feel like that was possible for me. I mean, it, I should have maybe forced that, but I, it just wasn't in my nature to do that. So I had these two competing um, aspects of my personal nature that made it really hard and uh, just incredibly exhausting. And in the end, worth it. But, you know, I was, I wanted to take a nap for a year after I was done. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I mean, but, uh, but again, I know that you hear this all the time, but for, for what it's worth, it's like all of that comes through 
Um, and it's just, it's, it's so obvious from the minute that you not even step into the space, but from the minute you pull up into the little parking spot, right, you cross the bridge, it slopes down slightly, um, as you, as you walk into the space and you can tell that like, this is, you know, the work of, of an artist. Like it's, it's like the, the very first thing that is, is so obvious. It just smacks you in the face that like, this is not just a, you know, short-term rental, uh, second, you know, home. This is not just a, a way to make a quick buck um, when, you know, you're traveling or, or not at your home. Like, this is like a full-fledged experience that you are being invited to step into, and you should expect to come out of it with maybe not, you know, dramatically different, but at least with a slightly new perspective on something, whether that's, oh, wow, I didn't even know what black walnut was, and now I do, uh, or, wow, I didn't realize that this bird... You know, I didn't realize uh, what the name of this bird was, and, and now I do. Or, oh, wow, like the, the way that the sun sets, the, the way that the light penetrates right at, you know, we were there in the winter, so, you know, 4.35 p.m., right, <laughs> um, is like this magical, like a golden hour in that area, right? So I, I think that all of that intentionality, those sleepless nights um, and those very focused days have yielded uh, so much more than a, than a stay, but a... A, an experience that I think most people, once they leave there, will not soon forget. And I think that that is a very hard thing to do well. People, you know, will be very generous with five-star reviews here and there, like, great place, you know. But but to be able to call and in, invite and then ultimately inspire somebody to think twice or think for maybe the first time in a long time about who they are and, and what they're doing and why they're doing it as we did, that takes an incredible amount of effort, an incredible amount of intentionality and an incredible amount of work. And so for what it's worth, thank you because I think that that year of sleepless nights and lack of presence, while I can't speak for, for Kristen uh, and your <laughs> friends and family, I think it was worth it. Well, thank you. And I also, I think it's really important to point out that um, it was a very much a collaborative effort and there's a lot of um, praise to go around to a lot of different people because there's a lot of people involved. Um, and you mentioned Rob and Carrie at, at the top of our interview and I just want to really focus back in on them because they is really as much their vision as mine. I mean, they, we told them what, what we were dreaming about and, and they're the ones that kind of gave us the starting point of, of, of that vision materialized into a design that we could actually look at. And then from there, you know, we improvised it in our own ways, but really if you're looking for one person or two people in this case to um, give credit for the overall kind of overarching experience of the nook, I would say Rob and Carrie deserve a ton of that credit. And then the many builders that, oh, there weren't many, but the, they were very, very uh, active in helping the, um, Alex and Coco are our main builders. And my good friend, Jesse was another primary builder and then Andy McFate with the wood details and all the artists that we collaborated with that, um, you know, I, I'm not a wealthy person. I can't, I couldn't afford to 
commission all of those pieces if people charged me the amount that they would normally you know charge a stranger but these were friends and they were doing some trade work and they were really working with me and that made it possible so i owe so much thanks to this creative community that really came together to make this thing happen it wasn't you know it wasn't just me out there working there was a lot of people well my final question for you mike is around like what's next like is you're working on a book for the nook uh which is which is amazing and have you thought about i know that you guys do have uh, another cabin um that you mm-hmm. that you own and operate on airbnb but um as you think about like the next two to three years like do you want to create nook 2.0 somewhere else is there another vision that you have for bringing to life a different kind of space in a different location or where do you see the next couple of years going with respect to your short-term rental business? Um, I don't think that we're going to do another short-term rental. Um, and really we've kind of, we have maximum capacity in both of our cabins and we've decided not to raise the price with the nook, especially we could raise it pretty significantly and still get the bookings, but, um, we want it to be accessible and, and so we've decided not to do that. So I don't think there's really any growth to be done with those two. They're just going to kind of hopefully keep riding steady where they're at. And um, maybe we'll do little projects here and there to to improve them or build upon them. But for the most part, the vision is complete on those. And um, we had originally thought maybe we would do a third one. But with the housing situation the way it is in Western North Carolina, um, it just feels hard to justify, you know, taking a, a property because the ones that we've built have been on the property that we live on. And one of the cabins was already there when we bought it. And then the nook, it, you know, didn't require a whole lot of kind of development or infrastructure because we could use the well that we were already on. And um, so, and the road was already there. So we didn't have to, to disturb the land very much. And, you know, it's surrounded by wood, so we really only cut down a couple trees to build it. Uh, but developing a new property, I think, would be different. We'd either be taking a house off the market that could be going to someone else who wants to live in it, or we'd be developing um, a property a, a lot more intrusively. So ethically, we're having a, a hard time figuring out how we could do that on a different property because our property's maxed out. We couldn't build another yeah. thing here. Um so I don't think we will, but I, I have, I sort of assumed that I was going to, so I've been milling a bunch of wood and it's been drying. So now I have all this wood that I, I'm excited to work with. And I think we're going to spend, you know, the next year or so actually focusing on our own house and, ah. and re- rethinking our space because it's been the the cabins who have gotten all, that have gotten all of our attention. And we actually just reached out to Rob and Carrie. They're going to come over um, and, in a week or so, and they're going to help us kind of re-envision our own space a little bit. And we're going to start plugging away at that soon. Wow. Well, that's exciting. Mike, this has been an incredible conversation. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your, your hospitality and really just kind of like your your ethos uh, and, and and what you're doing in in this space. Um, I, you know, t- I've talked to a number of, of short-term rental hosts on, on this podcast and, you know, outside of podcasts and i i i think that your vision um and the things that that you care about are are pretty unique 
um, and that's that's special. So appreciate you sharing a little bit of your story with us today. If folks want to learn more about you, learn more about your work, learn more about the Nook, we'll have uh, links to Instagram um, and your Airbnb listing below. But is there is there anything else that you um, or any you know anywhere else you might want folks to reach out if they're interested in learning more? Um, well, if they're interested in seeing the photography work, uh, that's at mikebellamy.com. That's my website for, for my photography. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Perfect. And I, and I really, I really appreciate the opportunity to tell this story because, you know, so much of it is about storytelling for me and I don't often get the platform to, to really go into all of that. So, um, I think it'll help people get an understanding for, what this is all about, why we did it, and um, guide them through, you know, a, a visit that will maybe be, you know, um, heightened by the awareness of some of the, the specifics. Couldn't agree more. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you for what you've built. And hey, here's to hoping that this next year you'll get uh, a little bit more sleep. But who knows? I mean, with your own with your own house now, and you, as you think about uh, reworking that a little bit. There might be some sleepless nights uh, yet ahead. But um, for now, uh, thanks again for coming on and for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. Hey friends, hope you've enjoyed today's show. If you are an Airbnb host or know an Airbnb host who'd like to come on the show, please send me an email at Zach. Z-A-C-H at Spontaneous.com and we will chat. Behind the Stays is brought to you each week by Spontaneous, a carefully curated weekly newsletter that brings you the best last minute deals and upcoming steals on Airbnb. It's sort of like Scott's cheap flights, but for Airbnb. You can sign up once again for free at Spontaneous.com. Last but certainly not least, I didn't believe in Marie Kondo's whole spark joy mantra until I started podcasting. Now, my joy is sparked every time I see a new subscriber roll in. So please hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And so you add a little spark to my joy fire today. Okay, that was kind of weird, but um, we're going to roll with it. Subscribe um, and thanks in advance. All right, everyone. See you next time.